According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Let's return once again to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. No, tell you what. Luke 24. We need to go to Luke 24. Because we're looking at flesh and bones. Luke 24. Flesh and bones. If Doug loses any more weight, he's going to be flesh and bones. That's a <laughs> All right. They uh, are startled. They're afraid. They think they're seeing a spirit. Verse 37, they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Think about all four of those terms. Troubled, afraid, Doubts, startled, frightened, doubts, troubled. Um, man, if anyone ought to be stable, it'd be these guys. They've had the best teacher in the universe for the last three and a half years. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. All right, this is where we are. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Spirit. We are humble under the authority of doctrine. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the privilege and joy that we have to assemble together, for the discipline, Father, of studying to show ourselves approved. It uh, takes effort, Father. It takes work as we compare Scripture with Scripture, as we search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. Father, we ask for your hand of blessing upon our time today. We ask uh, for your uh, reward upon those believers that made the positive volition decision that uh, the feeding of your truth is the highest priority on this day. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Main point four. Main point four. We talked about, see, last week we were dealing with the possible ascensions. And uh, let's see. Because the invitation to touch provided the stark reversal from uh, Mary Magdalene's prohibition against touching. It was so remarkable in John 20 and verse 17 when he said, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go, tell tell the disciples that I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. So that objection is evidently no longer an issue between morning and evening now from the time that he appeared to Mary Magdalene to the time now that he's in this upper room with these disciples that this objection has been removed. And I believe in between those events, he has ascended to the Father. And he has uh, removed that as an issue. And now he is eligible to be touched without um, objection. 
I believe this proves an ascension on this day. Prior to his final ascension, I think we have multiple ascensions. He ascended on this Sunday. He ascended several times in the next 40 days until his final ascension from the Mount of Olives 10 days before Pentecost. And we listed for you last week the four possible ascensions for the four necessary reasons he had to ascend in order to uh, fulfill the vision of Daniel 7, to receive all authority in heaven and on earth. Uh, he had to ascend to lead captivity captive when he transfers paradise to the third heaven. He had to ascend to cleanse the heavenly temple. We're told that he went in there with his own blood. He went into the reality, not the type or not the uh, shadow, but the reality. And he went in with blood Unlike the high priest who typically year after year has blood not his own, Jesus went in with blood his own and uh, cleansed the heavenly temple. And then finally, the last of the ascensions, when he ascended from the Mount of Olives 10 days before Pentecost, he ascended and was seated at the right hand of the Father until, the Father says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So four reasons why and uh, four possible occasions. Um, in which uh, these ascensions took place. All right, which brings us to main point four now, flesh and bones. Another contrast. Just as the don't touch me, okay, you can touch me now, gets our attention. Uh, Likewise, the expression flesh and bones gets our attention because normally the phrase is flesh and blood. Uh, Flesh and bones is a remarkable description not entirely equal to flesh and blood. And we took the time last week to look at Matthew 16, 17, 1 Corinthians 15, 50, Galatians 1, 16, Ephesians 6, 12, where we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers, spiritual forces of darkness and the heavenly places. Hebrews 2, 14, that Jesus himself partook of flesh and blood. Since we partake of flesh and blood, he partook of flesh and blood. So flesh and blood is the normal description for humanity for mortal humanity, all right? And it contrasts the temporal with the eternal. It contrasts humans with angels. It contrasts um, physical with spiritual, flesh and blood. When he comes back in his resurrection body, he does not call his resurrection body a flesh and blood resurrection body, okay? I believe that is significant. And if we could, we don't want to turn to all of these, but I think the one in... First uh, Corinthians is perhaps um, the most key here. First Corinthians fifteen fifty, because of what it contrasts the ne- the necessity for a resurrection, the necessity for something new. Since we bore the image of the earthly, we have to bear the image of the heavenly. Given the fact that we are heavenly citizens and our destiny is a heavenly destiny. It says in 1 Corinthians 15.50, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. All right, so the body you have now, and I know you're very impressed with it, and as, as impressive as it is, okay, and we're all, you know, we share your amazement, um, <laughs> as impressive bodies as you have, it cannot qualify for, for glory. All right, it cannot qualify for glory. And flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So something has to change before you get to heaven. And for most of us, unless we are the rapture generation, for most of us, what's going to change is we're going to die. All right? And this body is is going into the dirt. It's going to be worm food. We're going to decompose. Okay? 
and we're going to get a new body. Our soul spirit is going to be clothed in a new body. When this tent is destroyed, we have a new home made without hands, all right? And, and our soul spirit will be clothed with the, uh, the heavenly body. So, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, the parallelism of, of those two halves of the verse, okay, identify the fact that verse 50 has two statements in it, separated by that nor, and those two statements individually, separately have to be understood, and then collectively you put them together to see both things that are, that are being stated. Flesh and blood is one aspect, but perishable is the other aspect, okay? Perishable has to give way to the imperishable. And realize in the, two, in the parallelism of that verse, the two halves of verse 50, what Paul just did there, what the Holy Spirit just did there, was he took the phrase flesh and blood and firmly identified it with the perishable side of perishable versus imperishable. Okay, So clearly now, when Jesus walks out of the grave in his resurrection body, that's an imperishable resurrection body. Therefore, it's not flesh and blood. Jesus Christ's resurrection body is not flesh and blood. Yours and my resurrection body will not be flesh and blood. Why? Because flesh and blood is perishable. Flesh and blood is perishable, see? And if you think about it, it, it should make sense to us when we understand what it is that blood does for the flesh. What it is that blood does as it takes nutrients, you know, nutrition to the flesh, to every cell of our body that gets its nutrients through the bloodstream, and then waste products that are removed from the bloodstream, right? Waste products that are removed, okay? The role of blood in this mortal body is um, just just a glorious thing, even fallen. You know, imagine what it was like before the fall, <laughs> okay? Because it's still an awesome thing to behold after the fall. As David said, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And it, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling to think of God's design and what blood does when blood carries life. When blood carries nutrition, nutrients, and, and all the, the minerals and all the enzymes and all, everything that we need in every cell of our body that receives through the bloodstream, okay? And then the waste products that are taken away. And then what happens when that mixture goes bad? What happens when our blood goes toxic? What happens when we have bad uh, levels within the blood? And there's Obviously, there's problems that can happen there as a consequence of the fall. I just I wonder, what was, what was Adam's body like? What was Eve's body like? Okay, before the fall. Isn't that amazing? Now, but now, will we need that in the resurrection? No. The resurrection body will not need waste products removed through a bloodstream. Okay? The resurrection body won't have decay, won't have death. All right? Different things that I speculate on. Okay? What yeah, will the resurrection body have need of? Waste products removed. Okay. Well, is is the physiological process that breaks stuff down into waste, that's a death process, right? I mean the it's it's the the removal of dead stuff after you've already taken the life from it. Anyway, the resurrection existence will be different than our mortal existence. Mortality and immortality are different. And they're described here as perishable versus imperishable. And it's repeated again in verse 52. In fact, I think it's the most common term here is imperishable. 
uh, imperishables in verse 50, imperishables in verse 52, imperishables in verse 53, imperishables in verse 54. You know, it's got my attention when it's used that many times. Um, so in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Say, at the rapture of the church, there will be a living generation. But then there are 20 centuries now and more of dead generations. All, going all the way back to the first, you know, the first uh, martyr in the post-Pentecostal age of the church, right? The very first Christian death was the first part of the bride to, to make it to heaven. Most of the bride is in heaven, okay? Stephen, right? The first martyr in Acts chapter 7? All right, so Stephen is the first... Uh, that we know about anyway, the first church-age saint to depart earth and, and, and go to be with the Lord. And, and, and my mother and every other dead believer for 20 centuries of, of Christian church is in heaven right now. Most of the bride is there. I think the remnant, the, the, the rapture generation that's still living is going to be pretty puny and small compared to the, the bride that's, that's already there. So um, understand that uh, we're not going to go first, they will. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. In other words, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, so it has to give way to the description of our Savior from flesh and blood now to flesh and bone. Okay, Flesh and bone. And uh, perishable must put on the imperishable, mortal must put on immortality, And then we can sing the song, Death is swallowed up in victory, O death. Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? Now, under this, we understand from the Old Testament that soul life is in the blood. Soul life is in the blood. Subpoint A. Blood is important. All right? Blood is critical physically, spiritually, doctrinally. There is a tremendous uh, impact on blood in both Old Testament and New Testament. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin, right? Without the blood of Christ, we're going to hell. Blood is critical. And it teaches doctrine. But it teaches doctrine for this life. And if we appropriate the doctrine properly, then we will pass from this life to the next. <laughs> All right. A life that will not have blood. Okay. Jesus doesn't say his body is flesh and blood. He says his resurrection body is flesh and bone. His resurrection body has no blood and ours won't either. That's my conclusion. Okay? Soul life is in the blood. Genesis 9.4, Leviticus 17.11-14. Let's take a look at these. This may be new to you because I don't know that I've taught it any time recently. Um, maybe you've had it from previous pastors or um, other studies. Genesis 9.4, there was evidently um, a vegetarian existence before the flood, which to me is, is doubly terrible, okay, because you have to, you can't eat tasty animals, and, um, and you're going to live 900 years. I mean, goodness, that's doubly terrible. If I can't eat tasty animals, I don't want to live 900 years. I mean, goodness. But... After the flood, after the flood, the diet is adjusted and God now mandates uh, or provides not only plants but also animals. 
Uh, so when they get off the ark, God bless Noah and his son, say to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth. There's a fear that didn't, that wasn't there before the flood. And, um, the, uh, the nature of wild animals and the wildness of, uh, of a feral beast that has a, a programmed, um, fear of man. Okay anthrophobia, whatever we can call that. Um, and unless you domesticate the animal, unless you tame the beast, if it goes feral again, then it reverts to this fear. You know, I understand Fluffy, your little friendly house cat, has been tamed from that, but this is the natural order of the wild beast. Uh, every beast of the earth, every be- bird of the sky, and everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. So the diet can consist of beast, Bird, fish, and creep. Okay? Everything that creeps on the ground. And every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you as I gave the green plant. Now this is for Gentile humanity getting off the ark. This is long before Israel. This is long before the Levitical dietary code. Okay? That was a separate issue for the holy covenant nation that had to have limitations on their meat diet. Uh, but for Gentile humanity, for all humanity coming off the ark, uh, if it moved, you could eat it. <laughs> okay, if it moved, eat it. That's good rule of thumb. Okay, we used to have an army rule of thumb. If it moved, salute it. <laughs> right? If it doesn't move, paint it. And those were the rules of thumb in uh, boot camp. But all right. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Okay, very important. You can eat the animal, but when you kill it, cook it. Okay, drain the blood, cook the meat. Do not eat the meat with the blood. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. And what this is designed to do is this is designed to teach. Now there's probably also some health benefits in, in cooking your meat and not consuming uncooked raw blood. I'm sure there's health benefits that go with that too, but that's not the point. That's kind of icing on the cake. The real point is, is that Gentiles were being taught doctrine pertaining to blood and the shedding of blood something that we have in common with animals is animals bleed and we bleed okay it's something that we don't share in common with plants so vegetarians lose out on this but carnivores can can see the blood in the animal they're killing and in the food they're cooking and as they see this blood it's supposed to teach doctrine related to blood so whoever sheds man's blood by, by man, his blood shall be shed. A murderer is to be put to death. This is capital punishment as given to humanity right after God gets through almost exterminating all humanity, right? Yeah, I mean, think about it. There's eight souls left. Millions or billions that God killed in the flood. And they get off the ark and he's going to give them human government. He's going to give them laws of divine establishment, including capital punishment. The protection of life. The uh, guardianship against bloodshed. By man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. This is the reason why. Murder is such an offense 
Murder is immoral because murder is an attack against the image of God. All right. And notice, he still bears the image even though he's a fallen man. The image of God is affected by the fall, but it's not done away with. He still bears the image of God. Man is, an, is a, God's image bearer after the fall. Okay? I think Calvinism has trouble accepting that because they view the fall as such a total depravity that it totally changes the nature of what man was designed to be. But this passage says he still bears the image of God. Also in James there's a passage that talks about the image of God after the fall. All right. So there's blood. Over to Leviticus, Leviticus 17. Now, in Leviticus, we've, we do have some different dietary requirements because the Holy Covenant nation now has certain animals that they have to classify as clean versus unclean. Gentiles are under no such obligation. They can keep eating anything that moves. But uh, Israel has to limit, based upon their... Um, requirements to be a holy nation with a holy God, they're going to distinguish between clean and unclean animals. And that's ritually clean, liturgically clean, clean as far as what is acceptable for a sweet-smelling savor. All right. And so in Leviticus 17, um, help if I turn to the right chapter here. And you'll notice, um, there's a whole chapter here on sacrifice. Um, and without reading the entire chapter, how do I get away from doing this? Um, well, speak to Aaron and the sons of Israel is what the Lord has commanded. Verse 3, any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or who slaughters it outside the camp and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord. Here's an expression. Blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. Blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. The reason is so that the sons of Israel might bring their sacrifices, which they were sacrificing in the open field, that they may bring them into the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting to the priest and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And so this gives supervision to the, uh, to the priesthood for the animal sacrifices. And it just simply observes that it maintains that as the priests and the Levites observe this, that it's supposedly going to keep Israel from getting involved in, in demonism, from getting involved in false worship, from sacrificing to demons and going out in the high places in the woods and sacred groves and, and, and butchering goats to demons and things like that. It, it, may, it, puts the, it puts the shedding of blood under a spiritual supervision okay, for sacrificial purposes. I imagine they could still kill a goat and fix dinner, but um, in any event. Uh, and so they bring it to the, uh, to the priest or to the Levites, and then the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting and offer up the fat in smoke as a soothing aroma to the Lord. They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons uh, with which they play the harlot. This shall be a permanent statute to them throughout their 
generations. All right, so anyway, the, the, the shedding of blood is done under spiritual supervision. They're observing what takes place. They're actually taking custody of the blood to do the sprinkling and, uh, and so forth. And the violation of this is called blood guiltiness. There's a term, blood guiltiness. Okay. Anyway, so it's, it's a serious deal. And um, if, uh, if they violate this, they shall be cut off from his people. That man also shall be cut off from his people. You know what cut off means? Executed. All right. For the life of the flesh. Okay, uh, verse 10. And any man from the house of Israel, from the aliens who sojourn among them. So not just a Jewish person. If you've got a Gentile living among them, okay, an alien, um, they have to follow these rules too. Who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. I will do that, God says. He's not ordering you to do that. God says he will do that. Blood eating. Why is that significant? For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I, have, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. It's the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. It's why he selected blood to be the vehicle for atonement. That's why fig leaves didn't work for Adam and Eve. That's why it required the, the shedding of blood to, to kill the animal, to skin the animal, to clothe Adam and Eve in their nakedness. God chose blood, not chlorophyll and, and tree sap. Okay? All right? The, 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 the vegetarian existence doesn't paint the picture. That blood paints. All right. <clears throat> now, I mean, sure, tree sap takes nutrients to the branches from the roots up the, you know, out, got that. It has a, a, a similar function to blood, okay? The only difference is we don't have tree sap. We have blood, okay? And so to identify with us, <clears throat> to identify with us, it requires an animal, something with blood. <clears throat> All right. So therefore I said to the sons of Israel, no person among you who may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood, Okay? Now, decide what you will when you have your steak cooked. Medium rare, rare. <clears throat> How much blood is too much? At what point are you crossing a line? Does it have to be well done? If you see any pink at all, are you a sinner? Okay, well, the faith that you have, have as your own conviction before the Lord. And we're not under Leviticus law anyway, okay? Nevertheless, blood remains an issue, even before Leviticus. Blood was an issue getting off the boat, getting off the ark. Okay? Uh, the, the issue of blood was brought back up again in the book of Acts. Okay? All right, so soul life is in the blood. Soul life is in the blood. And interestingly enough, it's people <coughs> and animals both have nephesh in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament. And both have uh, ruch. They both breathe. Okay? Animals and people have blood, we have breath. Spiritual life in Christ is eternal life. <clears throat> so soul life is in the blood. 
spiritual life is our eternal life. But if our soul spirit is eternal, how can our resurrection bodies be bloodless? Here's my puzzling question. So soul life is in the blood. Spiritual life in Christ is eternal life. But if our soul spirit is eternal, how can our resurrection bodies be bloodless? Okay. Or a related question, if, <clears throat> if our soul leaves our bodies and all our blood in our bodies, then how does our soul still have life in heaven? And how can our resurrection bodies be bloodless? There's my question. It's a puzzle. Spiritual life in Christ is eternal life. John chapter 6, verses 53 and 54. If the life is in the blood, then how can we still be alive when our soul goes to heaven? Does our soul have blood? All the blood's in the body. All the blood gets drained out. Blood's, you know, it breaks down. In fact, uh, the blood's long gone. It's some of the first, uh, the, the liquids and the, the soft tissues are um, among the first to be uh, uh, decomposed, dissolved, eaten, gone. You know, bones have been around longer. But blood, okay. John six fifty three and fifty four, <laughs> part of uh, Jesus Christ and his sanctified orneriness. I love this chapter because um, he's teaching them, and they keep having objections to what he teaches. And so instead of backing down, he just makes it even worse. Um, they don't like the idea of eating his flesh. He says, "Oh, you don't like that? Okay, how about my blood? Drink my blood." And I find this interesting. So he's talking about the true bread of heaven. This is a crowd that doesn't give two hoots about salvation. They just want to have their belly filled. They'll chase them all the way around the Sea of Galilee just to get the next meal. And he says, you didn't come because of you saw the signs. You just wanted your belly filled. So then he tells them, uh, you know, they want manna. And he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living bread. Verse 51 says, I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're grumbling over that. So what does Jesus do? Does he back down and say, oh, I'm sorry? Or does he explain his metaphor? And No, he says, okay. Truly I say to you, unless you eat my flesh, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. You have no life in yourselves. Man, you think they're going to grumble now? He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. So, we have spiritual life in Christ. That's eternal life. We receive that by eating His flesh and drinking His blood. And in the resurrection, our resurrection bodies will indeed be bloodless. So how can we have life? How can we have life? Here's a a theory. I think instead of blood, we're going to have light. Perhaps light. Perhaps blood will become light. 
in the resurrection body. Just a guess. If we're not flesh and blood, if we're flesh and bone, perhaps blood will become light in the resurrection body. Luke 11, verses 34 through 36. It is Dr. Luke that's giving us these flesh and bone, flesh and blood descriptions. The medical knowledge he has available to him in the first century. I think Logos is releasing some medical texts, some Greek medical texts, Galen and uh, Hippocrates and some of the ancient Greek medical writers. It would be kind of interesting to read through some of those. Luke 11, 34. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Now I understand this is a metaphor and I understand this is representative of looking to the truth of God's Word. But specifically, it does reference our bodies, not our souls, our bodies being full of light. When it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, you will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. What if, and I do put perhaps as the first word of my point here, okay? So don't die on this hill, okay? Um, Perhaps, since our resurrection bodies will not be flesh and blood, that's, that's perishable. Jesus describes his body as flesh and bone. Well, perhaps blood has a replacement in the physiological structure of the resurrection body. It's not adapted to soul, it's adapted to spirit. It is a tangible, touchable body. It's, 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 it's corporal, I mean it's touchable. It can interact with the disciples there in the upper room. It can eat fish. So if it doesn't have any blood, what does it have? Does it have anything? Okay. Perhaps blood becomes light in the resurrection body. Just a guess. All right. Enough of that. Point five. Peace be with you is expanded to as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Back to John 20 now, John 20, 21. We have an expansion of the peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. It's expanded to as the Father has sent me, I also send you. John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I also send you. All he said in verse 19 was, Peace be with you. And they couldn't get past that part. <laughs> okay, He shows up and says, Peace be with you. And they're scared. Peace be with you. And they're not in a frame of mind to hear anything past that. To get beyond the peace be with you. To get beyond the uh, shalom message or the salam assalamu alaikum message muslims today are still saying peace be with you 
They just think Allah is the one that sends it. Okay. The the Jews today still say shalom. Okay, believing that Yahweh is the one who provides it. And they're not wrong, but uh, we understand that uh, now in Christ, it's grace and peace, okay, and mercy, multiplied. All right, so peace be with you is expanded to, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And I find it interesting is that he has to settle them down. He has to put them in a place to receive a message and then deliver it. And... uh, it's also going to provide for them the Holy Spirit in order to uh, carry forth in being sent, in being sent ones. Um, there's going to be some new work for them to be doing in the coming church age, and it's going to be a spirit-indwelled work. Really, we're going to focus on 21 through 23, I think, in the, in these subpoints. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you, have, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. I keep going back and forth with putting it in and taking it out, putting it in and taking it out. We've taught this before already. And so I may just let it go this time around. But we taught this before already in Matthew 16. I maybe just... We'll run us through it briefly to remind us what this is about. But there's work to be done. The point being is, quit being scared. <laughs> Listen to what I have to tell you. You've got to go to Galilee anyway. But as the Father has sent me, so also I send you. That's the one thing he's got to tell them here in this upper room. And he's going to give them the Holy Spirit so that between here and Galilee, they're going to be equipped to deal with what they've got to deal with. All right. You know... Um, if you think about it, it's uh, this was his prayer three nights ago. This was the Lord's high priestly prayer. Now he's voicing it to the apostles. This was the Lord's high priestly prayer. He uttered this in John 17. Now he's voicing it to these guys, these guys that couldn't stay awake. Okay? Or they couldn't stay off Facebook, or they couldn't stay... What was that cartoon? I won't give it away. There's a neat cartoon you guys are going to have in uh, the next newsletter. They couldn't stay awake. He kept coming back and finding them asleep. Let's look at John 17. Back up just a little bit. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Well, the Father sent him to die. (laughs) You know, so also I send you. Why do we draw lines in the sands? Why do we say, well, I'll follow him, but only up to this point? Okay? You know, only so far. No, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. As the Father sent me, so also I send you. Why, why do we expect, why do we think that we're, we're destined for millennial Christianity? We're not in the millennium yet. This is church age. This is intensified stage of the angelic conflict. This is, um, this is the cross that precedes the crown. This is uh, greater love has no one than this, the one lay down his life for the sheep. You know, I'm I'm thankful to be a a 21st century American Christian, but I'm also kind of sad because I think we're the the biggest pansies, okay? Um, No offense, you know, not to offend the pansies, uh, but um, we're just soft. 
We're just, uh, you know, perpetually, you know, we've got brothers and sisters right now that are being executed for their faith. Christian pastor in jail in Iran more than a year. How long has he been there? For, I mean, he's getting beaten. It's just more than a year. You know. John chapter 17. Um, he's getting ready to be arrested. And... Um, He says in verse uh, 13, I guess, without reading the whole chapter, I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. You know, this immature joy. Not, they don't have the fullness of the joy. How many believers do? I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. We ought to have a, a recognition that in our church age, we are behind enemy lines. We are fish out of water. We are, we are heavenly beings in a fallen world. And they hate us. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There's number one priority. Number one priority. And how many believers have the truth as their number one priority? You know, I take it or leave it. You know, go once or twice a month, and that's good. You know, get kind of spiritual, get a little religious, put 10 bucks in the offering plate and feel good about it. Now, how about 300 times a year? Okay? You want to be sanctified in the truth, saturated in the truth? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. This was his prayer. He voiced this to the Father in prayer, and now in the upper room uh, on his resurrection night, he's going to voice it to them out loud. As you have sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. The, the greatest asset we have in our Christian walk is our Savior who has sanctified Himself. And He's now our advocate. He's head of the church. He's seated at the Father's right hand. He has sanctified Himself the way, the truth, and the life. We ought to be occupied with Him. And the more we're occupied with Him, the more we're going to be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in Me through their word. In other words, the entire body of Christ, the entire bride of Christ, the entire church age. Every born-again believer that gets saved listening to the apostolic gospel of the New Testament. That's who Jesus is praying for. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. There is a corporate unity that is the body of Christ. There's never been anything like it. Israel did not have a corporate unity. They had tribal divisions. They had distinctions. The Levitical tribe, they had distinctions. All right? They were all baptized into Moses. They had had an identity under law, but they didn't have a mystical um, unity. That reciprocal in you, in me, that the Father and Son have and that we have in Christ. They may all be one, 
That unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that couldn't be written in the Old Testament. That's a New Testament truth for the church. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So there it is. This was his high priestly prayer. Now it's voiced to the apostles. And he's challenging them. Peace be to you. Let me go back to John 20 now. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Why do we have peace? (laughs) Why do we seek peace? Why do we want peace? I mean, we want peace because it's better than chaos. (laughs) We want peace because it's better than trouble. Um, The world we live in offers no peace at all. They're they're crying out peace and safety, and there isn't any. Uh, Satan offers a form of peace, but it has all these strings attached, and the price to pay is unthinkable. Um, why do we want God's peace? Why do we want God's stability? Why is peace our, our blessing in Christ? It's so that we can, not just so that we can have it, okay? God does not give us peace so that we have peace. He equips us with peace so that we can do the work that He sent for us to do, right? As we've received mercy, we, as we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. We receive peace, not just to have it, but to use it, to, to in that empowerment, to go forth and accomplish our great commission. The, the body, point B, the body of Christ goes forth in the bequest of Christ's peace. To me, this is, this is unbelievable. This is, this is an asset we have that Christ didn't have. So point B, Again, repeating, the body of Christ goes forth in the bequest of Christ's peace. John fourteen twenty seven. We go as he went, as the Father sent me, so send I you. We go as he went, but <laughs> we go with a victorious risen Savior seated at God the Father's right hand. We go with assets he didn't have when he went. Okay? As the Father sent me, so send I you. Plus, I send you with assets I didn't have. Would be what Jesus could be saying at this point. It's to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage that I go to my Father. Because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit as a permanent indwelling. Not just a a breathed out uh, Old Testament uh, uh, spirit experience. They'll get that in this chapter. He breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. I think he did that intentionally so that they would know the difference between an Old Testament and a New Testament indwelling. An Old Testament outbreathing and a New Testament indwelling. So the body of Christ goes forth in the bequest of Christ's peace. John 14, 27. My peace I give to you. And I love this. Um... Join me in John 14. We'll take a look at it. Verse 25 says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. This is why we understand that the the upper room discourse is a critical church age text. It's not like the Olivet Discourse. It's not for Israel. It's for the Bride of Christ. 
These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. This message is incomprehensible in the Old Testament. The disciples are listening to it this night and they are not equipped to understand the doctrine that they're getting in John 13 through 17. But when the Holy Spirit comes, on the day of Pentecost, then they'll understand it. Not when he breathes on them in John 20, when the Holy Spirit comes to them on the day of Pentecost, when the Father sends the Holy Spirit. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This is his bequest, right? You understand that when you bequeath something, you, you, you leave something in your will, right? And uh, people are talking about, you know, when I'm gone, you can have this and you can have this and whatever. All right? And sometimes you say, oh, I don't want to talk about that now. You're not leaving and I don't want to hear it. And well, Jesus knows he's leaving and here's his, be- here's his bequest. What I'm bequeathing to you is my peace. Not as the world gives. <laughs> this cosmos has a counterfeit peace. And unbelievers and carnal believers, they run to this peace seven days a week. Right? They run to this peace and usually it's drugs or alcohol or sex or women or, I mean, it's whatever it is. Happiness. I want to be happy. Got to be happy. I need to be happy. I deserve to be happy. I'm not happy, so I'm going to change my job, move towns, leave my wife. I, I deserve to be happy. What they really want is they're, they're following the idol of what the world defines as peace, and it's, there is no peace. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. See, this is the key. Does not let your heart be troubled. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 4. As we have received this, mercy, uh, this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We have Christ's peace. It's his bequest to us. His bequest to us. We go as he went, but we go with a victorious, risen Savior seated at God the Father's right hand. We have an advocate. He walks in the midst of this lampstand. He holds the stars in his right hand. We have a risen Savior. Day by day, we're engaged in this angelic conflict and we dwell in Him and He dwells in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have this daily reality. He didn't have access to that. He went. His Father was in heaven. He had the Holy Spirit that descended upon Him in the form of a dove. But He didn't have an advocate seated at the Father's right hand. That was Him. He wasn't there yet. (laughs) Okay? So you could think of it he had a father in heaven that looked upon him and, and uh, spoke on his behalf and provided for him. He had a spirit who indwelled him and empowered him and, and provided for him. But when he went to the cross, they both turned their backs and he was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father and spirit both, my God, my God, right? Think about what we have though. We've got father, son, and spirit all indwelling us. Man. So we go as he went, but we go with victorious risen Savior seated at God the Father's right hand. And to me, that is uh, is an amazing thing. All right. Now, as far as this Holy Spirit goes, um, I don't have points of study because we're going to move on to point six. So before we do that, um, when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. 
Now, they're going to get the Holy Spirit again on Pentecost. Okay? Uh, this is going to happen again when the church, when they're going to be gathered in the upper room and the Holy Spirit descends. And not just on them also, by the way, the whole 120, the, there was a large crowd that was there. Um, so this is different from Pentecost. This is not bringing them into the church. All right? They're receiving the Holy Spirit, I think, on an Old Testament basis, like um, Samson or David or any Old Testament uh, believer that receives, when the, when the Spirit of God comes upon them, he breathed upon them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But then he does say, if you forgive the sins of any, if you forgive the sins of any. Now, maybe you will, maybe you won't. Because some you're going to forgive and some you're going to retain. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Alright, so... What are we talking about here? What is, what, what is this? What, what are these instructions that he's given to the disciples? And um, this is what we looked at in Matthew 16. This is what we taught at uh, taught when, we, when he introduced his church and said, on this rock I will build my church. When he talks about the keys. So I didn't put any notes together. Well, I put them in, I took them out. Put them in, took them out. Maybe I should have left them in because it's been a while since we taught Matthew 16. Maybe I'll put them back in and we'll teach this next week. Um, there's an interaction between heaven and earth. Okay, There's an interaction between heaven and earth, particularly with these apostles, and it's going to become normative for the entire church age. It's normative for us today. There's an interaction between heaven and Austin Bible Church. Jesus Christ is in heaven, but he walks in the midst of this lampstand. Right? I'm on earth, you probably noticed that, but I'm held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. Okay? The star of this church, or this lampstand, the angel of this, of this local church. So, I'm still earthly, but I'm held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. We have a dynamic in between heaven and earth. And so there are activities that take place in this local church that ought to be or supposed to be, designed to be, a reflection of what Jesus Christ is doing in heaven. And we don't want to do anything here from our own will. We don't want to do anything of our own initiative. But as we hear, we teach. As we hear, we judge. As we hear, we act. Christ was a pattern for this. Because He didn't do anything in His own initiative when He was sent by the Father. But as the Father taught, He taught. As the Father judged, He judged. Right? As the Father sent me, so send I you. What do we do? See, here's the, here's the thing. Churches, we were talking about this during the, the training hour. Um, pastors and churches get all impressed with what they're doing. We're going to do a building program. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to expand. We're going to, we're going to launch a homeless ministry. We're going to do all these things of what we're going to do, and then we're going to impress God with our vegetables. We're going to demand, like Cain demanded, that you be impressed with what we bring to you. Okay? And God says, I didn't tell you to bring vegetables. I told you to bring a sheep. Abel brought what God told him to bring. Cain brought what he wanted to bring and told God to be happy with it. God wasn't happy with it. And here's the thing, churches and pastors and ministries, they're all engaged in this. I was talking, any believer, I'm not going to pick on Fallon, but any believer that's praying about possible ministry, okay? And it's good. 
She's praying about possible ministry she might want to do. And that's great. I join in those prayers. Dan's praying about possible ministry. But it's not what we want to do. It's what he wants us to do. Okay? What we do on earth needs to be a reflection of what's happening in heaven. And whether it's binding or loosing, that's Matthew 16, whether it's forgiving sins or retaining sins, okay? You've got to be careful with that because what sins do we not forgive? What sins are unforgivable? What sins are retainable? What sins are not forgiven? Okay? And this is a corporate application, not an individual application. On a, on a brother-sister basis, it's 70 times 7 and, and you know, don't even count. Okay? On a corporate basis, there are unforgivable sins in which case the person's removed from the congregation. But that's part of the binding and loosing of, of spiritual leadership that's reflective of what Christ is doing as head of the church. Okay? If that makes any sense to you. So, um, <laughs> you know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what if we don't confess our sins? They're retained. We're still under divine discipline. Personally, corporately. Okay? Corporately. Different applications there. All right. So uh, when we talk about what's done on earth, what's done in heaven, the same language we had... Oh, I don't know what I was going to read. Let me get back to Matthew 16. I didn't read this yet. Um, I will build my church. He says, uh, bless, verse 17, Matthew 16, 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. There's flesh and blood again. But my Father who is in heaven... I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. There is a church that is not yet in existence, but it will be in existence. He says, future tense, I will build my church. It's the first uh, um, clue with respect to mystery doctrine. All right. Then he said, and it's, it's going to be one of conflict. The gates of Hades? Wow. You know, Israel had to worry about Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and neighboring nations. The church is head to head against what? The gates of Hades. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth. Notice the verb tense is here. Whatever you bind on earth, that's present tense. Your earthly activity is a present tense activity. Shall have been bound in heaven. Perfect tense. Okay? It's a reflection of something previously done in heaven. Likewise, whatever you loose on earth, present tense, your earthly activity shall have been loosed in heaven. Perfect passive reality. Okay? Everything on earth is a reflection, if you're using his keys, okay, if you're using his keys, then everything we do in binding and loosing is a reflection of what's already been done in heaven. What's already been done in heaven. Same thing back to John 20 then. Uh, If you forgive the sins of any, present tense, in time, here on earth, their sins have been forgiven them. What we do on earth is a reflection of a heavenly reality. Likewise, if you retain the sins of any, Present tense, here in time, they have been retained. 
were a reflection on earth of what's happened in heaven. And I hope that makes sense. All right. Well, I didn't include any of those on printed notes, but maybe next week I'll go back and add them in. They will become uh, point C and D, maybe. Under point five. I was in Matthew 16 and uh, talking about the keys of heaven. Reading from Matthew 16, verses uh, 18 and 19. Yeah, 18 and 19. Right before Peter goes off the deep end and gets called Satan. (laughs) All right. We'll come back next week, and we're going to look at the disciples' faith impairment. The disciples remain faith-impaired. The disciples remain faith-impaired by virtue of joy and amazement. We're going to talk about faith impairment because not believing is a choice. And I think all too often believers today are faith impaired and they don't understand why. And they're slaves to their own emotions. They're slaves to what they say they can or cannot do. Well, I can't believe that. I want to believe that, but I can't believe that. As if faith was an ability Uh, and somehow we don't have the ability. No, faith is a choice. Faith is a recognition and a persuasion. And it's irrelevant, the ability. God gives the ability. It's not about an ability. It's not what we cannot believe. It's what we do not believe. And so uh, we'll have to deal with this next week. Next week, by the way, is the preview of the conference. So uh, we will have a class next week. And... uh, getting ready to kick off the conference that Thursday. So anyway, Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for today. Thank you for truth. We are persuaded by the truth. And Father, we accept the truth of your promises. And Father, we choose to trust in you as the faithful one who has spoken. And we thank you, Father, that we can walk by faith and not by sight. And this is not an ability that we either have or don't have but it is uh, a privilege that we are delighted to be obedient uh, towards, Father. We walk by faith, and we want to walk by faith. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.